All right. Well, thank you for coming back. We're uh, up on our next episode of the Fire Nuggets podcast. We got episode number 41 coming at you with Brian Olson. Uh, Brian, thank you for meeting with us today. Oh, no problem. It's my pleasure. Yes, we're going we're gonna to get uh, started. Kind of how we like to start things as we go through the uh, intro of them. And then we get uh, some main bulk questions. And then we have our last uh, three to four questions that pretty much every guest gets asked. Uh, but before we get to the questions, uh, we do want to thank our sponsor, Vanguard Safety Wear. They're the only sponsor we have. And uh, they've been helping us uh, push this thing out and also helping with uh, a little bit of funding here and there. So thank you to Vanguard Safety Wear, uh, Andy, Ryan, Nick. You guys are the best. Thank you. So let's go ahead and start this off. Uh, what, what you told us, and, and you're very proud of this, is you're a third generation Idahoian. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have a lot of Idaho pride. I've obviously grown up my whole life in the same small town. And and actually, my great-grandpa immigrated from Sweden to Star, Idaho in the early 1900s. So since him, I don't know exactly that origin of that story and how he ended up from uh, Oland, Sweden to Star, Idaho. But uh, yeah, since then, my grandpa, my dad, me, and now my sons have all been born in star which is a pretty small town in idaho and yeah it's a great place to live idaho is an amazing state uh even though a little bit unfortunately lots of people are starting to figure that out <laughs> so the landscape's changing a little bit around here but uh yeah it's still an amazing place to live and a great place to grow up so yeah and if anybody follows you on on social media you obviously love the the water uh, how close are you to the to the river? Uh, well, I'm pretty close to the Boise River. I'm only about a couple minute walk from the Boise River at where my house is. But the the rivers that I'm rafting and kayaking and stuff, they're about 30 minutes away. So it's actually where I'll probably be tomorrow. <laughs> be up there Not tomorrow. So very close. That's the great thing about Boise is it's a pretty good sized city and the valley in general has got a fair amount of people but it doesn't take very long to get into the mountains so we're kind of right at the foot of the mountains so quick trip in the car and you can be kind of out there a little bit awesome so you're you're a firefighter uh for eagle idaho kind of tell us about eagle tell us the size how many uh firehouses what kind of uh equipment i know uh speaking with sean marvin you know you guys got like a bulldozer crew and stuff like that so a lot of a lot of interesting things kind of give us the uh uh tell us everything you know about eagle fire and and your time there so far yeah so the uh we're a fire district um the city of eagle has roughly i mean it changes so fast now i think about forty thousand people give or take um and we probably have a little bit more in our actual fire district just because it stretches up into some more rural parts of around eagle uh four stations uh, we have three engine companies and one the station i work out station one has a quint a heavy rescue a squad which is like a pickup that we run medical calls in if we're there and uh also have a boat with that it goes with that for water rescue stuff and a battalion chief and a brush truck so we uh we cross man a lot of apparatus uh for a four-man crew you know if we 
if we're in the station and we get a medical call, we're jumping in the squad, all four of us. If we're in the station, we get a fire, we jump in the truck. If we get an extrication, we're going in the heavy rescue or tech rescue call. Uh, and then if we get a brush fire, we're, we're going in the brush rig. So um, we cross man a lot of stuff. Eagle in general, as a fire department, I kind of uh, have always joked we're like the little fire department that could. Um, we do a lot of things that uh, smaller departments might not necessarily take on. Like we also have an initial attack dozer, which is the only one around here. So that's part of um, our response model. Um, our other stations also have brush trucks and either a water tender um, or uh, we have these TRBs, just ra four person razors that are like uh, little foothills rescue vehicles. So uh, we do a lot of tasks that um, departments of our size might not necessarily take on, but uh, yeah, we're kind of the little department that could is kind of the joke I usually have. Awesome. And uh, you get about, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Yeah, you got about 15 years on the job there? Uh, yeah, so 15 years. Um, it's easy for me to keep track because I started the same week my oldest son was born. So he was born, and then I started my volunteer academy there. So I volunteered for at Eagle for just under three years, and then I got hired full-time in 2012. So, uh yeah, 15 years total time at Eagle, and yeah, that, all that time spent uh, in the back seat. So, excellent. And then uh, let's kind of talk about your involvement with with Brothers in Battle. Um, I think most people by now kind of know the story of you know you and 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 Ben were kind of running door props all around, doing some stuff, and then uh, Cody and. Uh, and uh, Jesse and those guys were kind of doing the same thing. So you guys kind of merged So kind of just tell me what, what you think of, you know, brothers in battle, what it's meant to you. Uh, Cause I know a lot of guys that, you know, teach for, for BIB kind of say that it has been, you know, career changing for them. Yeah. I mean, brothers in battle has certainly been career changing for me. I mean, um, you know, when we got hooked up, uh, it's, from refined by fire training that, you know, the group of us here in the Valley, were kind of doing that thing. And we merged with brothers in battle. Um, it just opened up uh, a whole world of opportunities that otherwise wouldn't have been there um, just because of the outreach of brothers in battle and kind of what it's become. And so, uh, yeah, for me, I mean, there's 0% chance in my mind that I would have traveled around the country and gotten to go to these conferences and things if it wasn't for brothers in battle. So, um, yeah, it's certainly had a tremendous impact on my career in that regard of, of just, I probably would have just hung out around this area. Uh, and I wouldn't have gotten to meet the people I've met and getting exposed to the different types of training and departments and things I have through brothers in battle. So, um, and, Obviously, Brothers in Battle has had a pretty significant impact on the fire service in general, I think. So to be a very small part of that is pretty cool. So, Yeah, and uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I think a bulk of the cadre is from Idaho. There's <laughs> a pretty good chunk, yeah. I mean, it's uh, – yeah, at one time – uh my – half of my entire shift was Brothers in Battle instructors. So – that's 
all that is to say is that at least we're on the same page as far as our mindset and things. You know, we have a lot of good firefighters who aren't brothers in battle instructors, but um, as I'm fond of saying at the station is promotions ruin everything. <laughs> so that's no longer the case, you know, uh, those guys get promoted and those crews get broken up and now we're kind of spread all over the department. But uh, yeah, Eagle has a pretty good amount. And then obviously there, we got some, uh, guys in Boise and Meridian also. So yeah, this, this Valley in general is just, uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on here in the treasure Valley and yeah, brothers battles, uh, is a small part of that for sure. Excellent. Um, so you're one of the original, one of the OGs of the firefighter rescue survey, which JLo's in here. He's going to be popping in some questions also. Um, but, uh, me and JLo are a part of, but you know, you and Trent and Shane and Justin McWilliams and, and, you know, Nick, you guys started this thing back in, I believe, 2016, you know, and, and there was a lot of, uh, shockingly, there was a lot of people that didn't want it to happen. You know, they, they said they didn't really, you know, give a shit about it, but, uh, you know, looking at the impact that it's had today. And I think the impact that it's going to have in the next 10 plus years, you know, kind of, uh, give us what your involvement was in the beginning and, and what, uh, what you think of where it's at now and where it's going. Yeah. So, I mean, in the beginning, it, it kind of, uh, sprouted out of, you know, we were, I was looking at statistics from like the U S fire administration and NFPA and these things. And, and I honestly didn't really know what they meant and as in regards to like how that would change operationally, anything we did regarding search, I would just like looking for this information and seeing like, did it have any merit? And that's about around the time I did, um, I did a, a fire X talk that you can find on YouTube, I think. Um, so I was kind of digging into these numbers and just seeing like, well, what does it mean if someone was trying to escape the house fire or how many people were trying to escape? And like, does that mean anything at all? And then just digging deeper into that and then got involved with uh, Kurt Isaacson had at the time firefighterrescues.com where they were posting news articles and things where people had been getting rescued or making rescues. And so I, I was a little part of that as well as some other people, Andrew Broussard, I know is part of that as well. And a couple other people, um, maybe Josh material also, but I don't want to misspeak, but uh, yeah, we were just posting these things to the website of like, Hey, yeah, people are actually getting rescued, which then led into me just asking the question, well, like, do we know how many people we actually rescue every year? and looking for that information and could not find it and and kind of quickly realized like well we don't actually know no one records that information so about that time met justin mcwilliams at the very first firemanship conference in portland and we struck up a friendship and kind of started digging into this and at the same time nick ladine had called me and he was working with the nfpa and uh kind of between those kinds of conversations is where the idea to just do our own voluntary survey because we couldn't find anywhere where anyone was actually tracking this information and it was just kind of a it was very shocking you know because when you think about it it's you know I, I played baseball for 20 years it'd be like you know we only keep track of our strikeouts we don't keep track of our home runs and so 
uh, yeah, that's kind of the genesis of where it came from. And then, you know, we, I don't remember who got who involved, but Justin, you know, um, and Shane Thomas had worked together and Trent Morrison was kind of over in that area as well. And he had kind of the computer uh, knowledge to be able to build a website like that because initially we wanted it to be attached to firefighterrescues.com to Kurt's website. Um, but however that, that kind of computer stuff works, that wasn't a possibility um, to have it the way we wanted to. So like with Kurt's blessing, we used firefighter rescue survey and, kind of made our own uh, own web page with the survey on it so so uh, yeah just out of those just out asking the question why basically like why don't we have this information why doesn't anyone track it and then realizing that no one does and and just going after it and yeah like you said it wasn't uh, <laughs> it wasn't like uh, received with open arms by ev everybody uh, for sure but uh, yeah and even some of our friends were the people that, that weren't really receiving of it, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately for me, I've, I have a pretty good memory and I still remember a lot of those people <laughs> to this day, you know, it's just in the beginning it was, it was, I, because at that time I was very heavily and I was putting a lot of stuff on social media, whether that was through brothers in battle or, or my own, um, uh, facebook or like in the very beginning sharing some stuff with justin on search culture and and yeah it was uh there was you know there was some very open negative feedback regarding it which you know you should expect but um me being the type of person i am you know you could have 99 people compliment you but you're going to remember the one person that didn't um and what they said so yeah in the beginning for me it was uh yeah i i felt the brunt of kind of you know, us knocking our head through the wall there. So. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it's off to a, it's off to a good start, you know, and it's, uh, it's definitely climbing up. Um, yeah. I mean, it's going, um, no, I was just going to say, it's kind of going where uh, it's going where, you know, I thought it might eventually go and making kind of the impact that it would. And, and I always knew that, uh, it wasn't going to be me for sure at the forefront of it. I knew that at some point there would be people getting involved that could really um, take it to the level that, uh, you know, I think it should be at and that we're in that process right now. So it's pretty cool to see one, just how many more people are utilizing the, the data for positive things in their department and the fire service as a whole. Um, and that the survey has kind of proved its worth, even though in the beginning it was a uh, rough going. So, yeah, I mean, it, it should be able to, if it's worthwhile, it should be able to withstand the kind of those, those fires and those hits and still be productive on the other side. And I think it's doing that. So it's cool to see. Awesome. And you, you kind of mentioned this in your answer to kind of hit one more piece of your, your intro here. You, uh, it's a very well-known social media page now, you know, search culture, you and, uh, Justin kind of led this up together. Um, and from my understanding, you don't really do much with it much more, but, uh, I mean, what a incredible resource and, and page for the fire service. And that's just another thing, you know, that, uh, I, I think that we should say thank you 
for for you and Justin for doing that too because there's so much good dialogue and uh Justin I I, I want to say this in the politest way possible he's like a argumentative fighter so like he he loves <laughs> yeah. uh he he loves causing arguments but he will defend anything that he he says or believes so then it causes great dialogue back and forth people usually end up getting pissed off but after they get pissed off they kind of realize like hey like you know he's trying to explain something so um anything yeah, that you want to say about that you know yeah so i mean i was i was part of search culture just in the very beginning and i'm i'm actually not on social media at all anymore i don't have uh instagram or facebook or any of that anymore but uh so he's really taken that to the next level and they, and this is part of the benefit of the rescue survey as well is is that justin will talk about the things and i don't want to speak too much for him but he'll talk about the things he believes and he can back them up with data and all types of things so he what he seems to do a lot is really just challenge these ideas about certain things in the fire service specifically search and just say well show me like prove that to me you know because people will make these broad general statements you know like when the rescue survey first came out there was an idea kind of going around that like we couldn't rescue people anymore the speed of the fire development and the response times we had i mean there was even a book written kind of uh on that premise of that the way the fire service is now and the fuel loads we have, we are not able to rescue people anymore. And it was like, well, wait a second, where is that information coming from? Like prove that to me. Well, the re the rescue survey has proven that that's actually not true. We rescue people on a daily basis. So Justin really likes to challenge people when they have these beliefs that they put out there into the world. Like he wants some evidence. He's not interested in you just saying that's what you think it is. He wants to know, you know, what kind of evidence you have to back it up. So I think that elicits good conversation because it challenges those deeply held beliefs people have to make them really think about why do I believe this way? So. Excellent. And then the, the last piece, probably the most important piece is uh, you're a family man, you know, you've been married for 20 years. You got, uh, you state three boys. You got uh, two teenagers, I believe, in the in the uh, the dog Stanley, right? Dog, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Heather and I have been we've been together for twenty years. We've uh, technically been married for sixteen years, but uh, yeah, we've been together full time for twenty years. Um, yeah, she's uh, she's an amazing partner to have, and. Uh, She's a God-fearing woman and just, uh, we've been to hell and back together. And uh, yeah, the only success I've ever had in my life is uh, when I feel like God is leading me to do something, I somehow find the courage to say yes. And it's the reason why I'm married to the woman I am, why I'm a firefighter, why I'm a chaplain, like all of these things that have been the what I consider the successful parts of my life are all things that um, yeah, when I was asked to do something, I, I said yes, and and Heather is part of that. So I'm very lucky in that regard. And and then, yeah, I have two teenage boys. They're Easton and Eli. They're 15 and 13. So uh, for better or worse, they're, you know, a little bit of mini-me's, but uh, they're uh, very active kids. Uh, I have a great 
um, relationship with them. We spend a lot of time outdoors lifting weights together and, and yeah, all the things that I kind of dreamed about doing with my sons when they were younger, uh, being a dad kind of that is, uh, coming to fruition. So it's, uh, amazing. And then, yeah, Stanley, I mean, I didn't, I'm a dog person. It's, you know, I don't know how you, how people don't like dogs. I know some people have had bad experiences or whatever. They're allergic, but like, you know, a dog is one of the only things on earth that loves you more than it loves itself. So, uh, I just can't imagine having Stanley around. He's actually sleeping like 20 feet away from me right now. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's my family. And, uh, yeah, I'm very lucky. Uh, I'm a lucky man in that regard for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it, brother. So I know we touched on Eagle a little bit and kind of touched on how you have several members that are with brothers in battle. Um, I got the privilege to meet Sean Marvin. I think it was H rock of 2018 solid dude. Um, but yeah, we got to hang out and train together and stuff. So as far as having those members that are part of brothers in battle, how did that come about? And like, kind of, how did you guys foster that? Like where did that culture come from or like what got them interested in wanting to be and help out and instructing with that? Yeah, I think as far as, um, kind of our training culture at Eagle, you know, Eagle, Eagle is a pretty awesome place with some amazing people. Um, but I also always say that like way more people in the fire service know about Eagle fire than they should <laughs> because it's a, you know, a small suburban department in Idaho. So um, part of that is just social media outreach and brothers in battle. Right. Cause you, you, if you're around brothers in battle, you're inevitably going to meet somebody from Eagle fire, but uh, there's a lot of good mentorship. I think, um, coming from, you know, uh, Ben Rosenbaum, you know, kind of, there's this lineage of people at Eagle, you know, from his captain, which was Jeff Crockmall, which he talked about when he did his episode, you know, Jeff kind of fostering that training mentality in Ben, and then Ben kind of passed that on to me. And, uh, there's this kind of chain down the line of people who are very interested in training and there's other guys in there josh maggard and ben moores and sean marvin and steven tyler and all these guys that like we just kind of form this really tight-knit unit in our department of training and we have a lot of great firefighters that don't do any of that stuff as well but uh eagle in general has always had a pretty good reputation for being um a department that trains a lot because whether that's the brothers in battle influence or, you know, we used to have the quad County truck Academy, which was a 10 day truck Academy that people from all over the country attended. Again, that little department that could mentality, um, you know, at, at the time, three station suburban department in Idaho hosting a 10 day truck Academy. Um, you can imagine to, it was all hands on deck for that kind of thing to happen and to be successful. So, um, I think a lot of it is just good mentorship. And then, you know, we all go through these phases in our career where we're really fired up about stuff and then it kind of dwindles down and, and having that, you know, group of people around, there's always somebody there to kind of uh, get you back on track if you're feeling a role a little bit. Cause the one thing about Eagle fire is, you know, we're not going to a ton of fires. So um, I don't know how it is for everybody, but for me personally, when I feel like I'm training and I'm training and I'm training for something that I'm not getting a lot of opportunities to do, that can get, that can wear on me after a while. 
Um, and so having those other people around to kind of, uh, you know, pick you up and give you, a, you know, a little bit of a motivation when things are feeling kind of slow uh, is very helpful. And luckily at Eagle, we that's one thing we have for sure is we always have guys that are engaged in the job. So, uh, yeah, I think that's helped to foster that environment. So. I think it's a perfect time to also hit uh, one of my favorite quotes I think I've ever heard you say is that uh, I, I can't remember if it's that I don't get to go to a lot of fires or if it's I haven't had the opportunity to go to a lot of fires, but I've never yeah. wasted one, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't go to a lot of, I don't get a lot of fires, but I've never wasted one, yeah. Yeah, excellent quote, man. Yeah, because, I mean, it's the truth, unfortunately, you know. Unfortunately, that's the one thing I can't control at my department, you know, is like how many fires I get to go to. But, uh, yeah, when they happen you know, I think that leads to that good training is like, cause when they happen, you gotta be on it. And so I, I, again, baseball reference, you know, if you're, if you're not going to a lot of fires, you're kind of like a pitch pinch hitter, you know, you're, you're on the bench, you're practicing every day, but you're not in the game every day. And when they do call on you, you know, a lot of times they're expecting a home run or something. So it's like, you're in, you're kind of that pinch hitter of you always got to be ready because you don't know when that, that bat's going to come. And, and that's how I kind of feel about how we are when we're, you know, we're just not going to as many fires as we want to. So um, we got to keep the, that edge sharp somehow. So training is really the only way to do that. Amen. So we kind of hit this question a little bit in the intro, but I, I kind of want to adapt this one a little bit to kind of get a little bit of a different feel on it. So you're one of the founding members of the rescue survey, like we stated, and you said in the intro that, you know, there was a couple people that you knew were going to push this forward. And I, from being in the group, I, I think the two that push it forward probably the most is probably chief brush and probably Justin McWilliams. Uh, Nick is fantastic. JLo's fantastic. Jonah, everybody else part of the team too. Fantastic. But I always throw like a little joking meme in the chat every once in a while, like uh, stepdad, you know, the Mark Wahlberg yeah. and the Will Ferrell. That's Brush and that's McWilliams. I'll let you decide which one is which. <laughs> but uh, So from from kind of being uh, in the in the backside of this now, what do you think moving forward would really push us to that next level? Uh, well, I mean, just the more buy-in you get from departments around the country that are implementing this, you know, into their SOPs or SOGs, that's going to be one way. Um, you know, the the funny thing about it when it started is, you know, we, I'm not going to say we were a bunch of nobodies, but, uh, you know, we, we don't walk into the room and get that immediate, like, street credibility, you know, especially in the beginning, back in 2016, it's like, who are these people starting this survey? We didn't have, you know, somebody, a part of that initial group that had like the magical letters behind their name that gets the instant credibility. So, um, yeah, when I, when I say that I knew there would be someone else, I, it would, I didn't know who it was going to be, but like someone like Brian brush, you know, who's a chief officer. Um, he's widely respected across the fire service. Like somebody like that, uh, taking it forward is, is what it needed not you know at the time a bunch of dudes riding in the back seat you know making fart jokes or whatever so uh we needed 
we needed some more, uh, some more of that credibility nationally. And, uh, yeah, I think we're getting to that point and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, great things on the horizon, I think, because, you know, you got, uh, somebody now as David Rhodes, you know, as the head of fire engineering and, and I know he, uh, is supporting the survey. So like the, I think, uh, the sky is the limit. Um, I know there's, some differing opinions on whether it should be something that's ran by like a governmental organization or a private organization or whatever. I kind of hope the survey stays kind of in the vein that it's in, but uh, yeah, the more, the more bigger names, the more bigger departments we get to buy off on it. Like that's slowly just going to trickle down more across the fire service and make it more well-known because yeah, it is well-known now in certain circles, but I still go places where people have never heard of the survey. So you want to make, make a change there to where, you know, it's pretty rare that you find somebody that hasn't heard of it. So. Well, Brian, I'd like to add to that too. So when this started, when you guys started the fire rescue survey, um, would you mind talking a little bit about how did the funding go with that? Where did that come from? Well, yeah, as far as I know, the whatever funding was there was just for the website alone. It came out of everybody's own pocket. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It was just, uh, yeah, a little bit of a fee to pay for it ourselves. I mean, it was really, nobody's making money on this. It's never made anybody any money. If anything, it just costs money. Um, so yeah, it's just simply out of love of the job and, and wanting to get a handle on this information that we, you know, for some reason, the American fire service, we didn't know about. So yeah. Yeah. All the I funding, think that was... as far as I know has come out of there or, or, uh, you know, donations from people. So. Yeah. I think up until just not too long ago, you know, getting the 501c and all that, I just want to make it, you know, it's pretty apparent that that was paid from out of pockets of you guys that started this deal because just the passion for it and the, and the mission you guys were trying to push. So I think that's a good point to bring up. All right, JLo, you want to hit that next one, bub? Gotcha. So as far as Jojo smoke diver, um, can you tell us a little about your experience? Like I personally, I have a firefighter, the only firefighter for Oklahoma city. That's a Georgia smoke diver. I think his number is 1063 Dylan Murray. Um, and I've heard a lot from him from what he can share, but tell us a little bit about your experience as far as preparation for that. What kind of drove you to want to do that? And then what your experience as far as going through it was. Yeah. So, um, I found about found out about the Georgia Smoke Diver program from uh, Eric Haskins, who's you know the first he was the first guy in Idaho to go through it. Didn't know anything about it, and uh, yeah, I just started asking him questions about it, and he he told me what it was kind of all about, and I was immediately uh, immediately intrigued and and knew that it was something I wanted to do. Um, yeah, preparing for it, you know, I think I trained pretty specifically for it for about nine months straight is what, what I had going. And that's everything from physical conditioning to drills to um, just mentality. Um, and so, I, you know, I, 
I wanted something that I, I had to put that much time into. And I wanted something that there was a chance that I wasn't going to be successful. And, and Georgia, certainly from what I could tell, I mean, there's a lot more information about the program now because, you know, uh, when I went through in 2019, there really wasn't anything you could find online about it. And now they have a little bit more of a presence on, on social media and things like that, which is good. More people are finding out about it, but at the time it was kind of a mystery still. Um, and so I like that part of it. Um, and then, yeah, as far as the experience overall going through it, um, yeah, it really changed a lot of things about my career and about uh, the type of firefighter I thought I was and uh, decision-making. Um, it's just, it's such an amazing program. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people think it's kind of like a physical beat down and it is in some regards, it's not an easy physical thing to do, but, uh, there's so much more to that program than that. Um, one thing I haven't done is like gone back and helped with that yet. So they probably wouldn't even consider me a smoke diver anymore, you know, cause I haven't gone back and helped. I hope I hope in the future I'm going to make it back. It got shut down for COVID for a little bit, but then, uh, yeah, I haven't gone back and helped. So everything I'm speaking about is either something else I've heard about the actual program. Cause I haven't really seen the other side of the curtain yet. I've only experienced going through it, but, uh, yeah, there's just so much decision-making you have to make in that class on your own. Um, you're physically and mentally fatigued. Uh, there's just nothing else in the fire service that I've found that's like it from a training aspect. So um, it really changed a lot about, for me, like how we should train, um, how we train decision making, um, my personal preparation towards the job. Uh, it just really changed a lot of those things for me. And on like more personal level, it was a way for me to kind of prove to myself that I you know, maybe am the firefighter I think I am, uh, because it is that kind of challenge and they don't care who you are, what your name is, where you come from. None of that matters. They have a standard and it, the only thing that matters is either you meet that standard or you don't. Uh, and that's what I wanted, especially being, you know, I've always had this love hate relationship with social media. And so being very prevalent as a firefighter on social media and being from a small place, there's always the, you know, imposter syndrome that you feel a little bit. And, uh, and so Georgia was also a way for me to go and kind of test that for myself and to see if I could actually, um, you know, kind of put my money where my mouth is and complete, you know, what, a, as far as I can tell is, you know, the most challenging training program in the fire service. So, uh, yeah, it, I feel very lucky that I went through it like 10 years in um, because it gave me that uh, little boost, you know, when I, when I might have started taking it easy, it gave me that thing to shoot for that hopefully propels me for a while longer and motivates me. Um, so, yeah, nothing but a positive experience for me in that program. Awesome. So I'll kind of toss this into – lead into Jeff's next question, but do you feel like that uh, maybe gave you more of an idea or a better an idea as far as fitness level? And then I'll let Jeff go on with his question, but like, how did that, how do you think that helped you prepare more or understand what you needed as far as your fitness level? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it was just like not only fitness level, but like how our physical conditioning affects our decision making on the fire ground. Um, because like I don't train currently like I did to go to Georgia Smoke Divers. Um, I train a lot differently now physically, but uh, just understanding like what it takes to go through that amount of uh, physical and mental strain for a week straight. Um, I think taught me more about my limits or perceived limits and then how those, you know, how my physical conditioning can affect how I perform on the fire ground. So. Thank you for the intro there, JLo. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, about some, uh, some fitness, which I know that you, you feel that is uh, very important for our job and, and very, you know, task specific as well. Um, you know, back when you had social media, you know, you would do lifting rocks, you would work out in your gear, all sorts of awesome shit. So let's, let's kind of talk about your, your fitness journey. And, and by the way, I, I know you're coming to Aurora in July. I'm fucking eyeballing a rock. I got to find one. And then we, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll probably accidentally put in like Sean Marvin's room. So like give it to like the smallest yeah. guy. It'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 kind of funny to me because almost every single time I've done a podcast, somebody said something about stone lifting, which makes me laugh. So, uh, yeah, but can I just talk about that for like a second? Is that cool? If it I talk about show. stone lifting it's for a show, second, man. all right. Uh, yeah. So, like, it's funny. I I growing up, my dad was a farmer, my mom was a landscaper, so I worked a lot outside and. I used, my mom used to take me out into the desert and she would get rocks for landscaping jobs. I think, you know, I don't know how legal that activity was. You know, I don't know if she was just supposed to be going out and, you know, I climbed over more than a few barbed wire fence to go pick up a rock and carry it to the trailer. But, uh, she would have me go out there and yeah, she'd be like, I want this rock and this rock. And I'd pick it up, carry it to the trailer. Um, and then our landscaping jobs, I would, I would be moving these rocks around. So like, I've actually been lifting stones like that for like a re you know, since I was, you know, probably 12 years old or 13 years old, but then there's a lot of history, like stone lifting is the second oldest physical activity there is as far as training goes, it's first was running and then stone lifting. So if you look at all, there's cultures all over the world where like, quite literally, if you wanted to marry a certain girl, you had to lift the rock that her father chose for you. Or if you wanted to make more money as a fisherman, the bigger rock you could lift, the more money you could make. So um, my family all comes from, you know, uh, the Norwegian part of the world where stone lifting was how you were employed and how you found a wife and basically how you did anything. So uh, I'm really interested not only in just I like to pick up rocks, which sounds kind of goofy, but um, the history part of it is uh, is pretty awesome as well. So um, it'd be a, you know, I kind of laugh because it'd be a very different fire service if in order to become a firefighter, you had to pick up like a 300 pound rock. You know, <laughs> we don't have any kind of physical fitness standards um, that I think are, are are high enough in the fire service. But yeah, I did. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the stone lifting thing for a minute and where it came for came from for me. And I got back into it a lot in my uh, mid thirties when I started doing um, 
strongman competitions and stuff like that. So that's kind of where that stone lifting thing comes from. I don't know how much uh, transition it really has to the fire service. You know, it's just picking up an awkward object, I guess. But uh, that's kind of where that love of that comes from for me. As far as uh, physical fitness in the fire service and, you know, I really think it's something that we're, we're missing out on a little bit. Um, you know, you just don't see one, the barrier of entry to become a firefighter physically, um, is just not that high in most places. Um, my own department for years has not had, um, a physical fitness test that you had to complete to get a job. You know, it's, uh, you know, you a treadmill test, but there's no like, nothing like the combat challenge or, you know, even a mile and a half run or anything like that. We didn't have for years and years. Um, and I don't think that's an uncommon thing in the fire service. So, uh, I really wish that we could kind of uh, change that. And, you know, if you raise the standard, people will meet it. I think a lot of times we're afraid that we're going to get less applicants or, or whatever, because we raised the physical fitness standard. But, um, you know, if you raise the standard, people will work to meet it. Um, as far as like just being fit for the job and kind of how that ties into, um, you know, my experience in, uh, in Georgia in the smoke diver program is, you know, the part of the magic of the smoke diver program, I think is, you know, you are physically and mentally fatigued for a week straight. And then you have to make these complex decisions doing fire ground operations and you just don't get that in our normal training. We're never that fatigued. And when you get to that point, you kind of, you know, for me, it's eye opening of, you know, kind of how that ends up happening on the fire ground is, you know, when we are extremely physically exhausted, whether that's, you know, trying to pull a victim out or, or just getting really hot during a search or getting disoriented. And there's all these physical things that are happening to our body. Um, that we might not, not necessarily have as good control over as we want, it really points to like, what is our physical fitness level? And that can affect our decision-making because basically speaking, like if we're more physically fit, we're going to get less exhausted, the less exhausted we are, we're not going to get as mentally tripped up on the fire ground. So um, I think we, in a lot of ways, we really miss the boat on the physical fitness side of things in the fire department. And, uh, a lot of that too, is not training in our gear. Um, you know, uh, the person who does my personal programming for the fire department or for the fire, my fire training is, uh, Eric Haskins. Um, he has a company with Frank Bovey called brotherhood and training. Uh, and he has a program called firehouse strength and conditioning. And, and if people don't know Eric Haskins right now, he's also a smoke diver. Um, but if they don't know him now, within the next few years, a lot of people in the fire service are probably going to know who he is. Um, he's just a one, a very hardworking and dedicated firefighter, but also he's like a very talented um, programmer and uh, went to school for that. And he's very smart. He just posed or he just uh, published an article in Fire Engineering about this exact topic. So go look that up. But uh, his program is very specific to firefighters and 
what he said, he has a, a slide that he shares at times on his social media that talks about how, like when we put our gear on and we're on air, we have like a 40% less ability is for physical output than normal. So like whatever you can do in your PT gear, like you put that gear on and that's almost going to get cut in half what you're able to accomplish. And so in my mind, that means like, well, I need to be a lot better in my gear um, because we're not going to be operating in the fire without our gear and without our SCBA. So it's great if I can do it in my PT gear, but what really matters is like, what am I able to accomplish in my gear? Um, and I'll use, uh, I have a very current example of this from my own department. So just a couple of days ago, um, we're switching from 30 minute SCBAs, uh, 30 minute bottles to 45 minute bottles. And so our uh, training division wanted to put everyone in the apartment through a little, this is like the first stage of uh, some air consumption training and stuff with the new 45 minute bottles. So what they did is they built a, a little workout, you know, it was like carry a hose bundle up the tower, um, do an 80 foot dummy drag, 30 jumping jacks, 20 air squats, 45 second plank, 20 tire hits. And the only goal of this workout was you're going to be on air in your gear and you're just going to set a steady pace and you're going to go until you completely run out of air, like mass sucking to your face. And we had a lot, we had a lot of people that did very well. And then we had some people that could not complete the drill without taking the regulator out or taking the regulator off or weren't able to complete certain exercises in that. And so they either chose to skip them or not do them. And, you know, not to beat up on my own department too much, but it's like that to me, like as far as basic firefighting goes, it doesn't get much more basic than being able to breathe down a bottle of air while we're doing some work. Um, that's what we're going to be doing on the fire ground. So my department is not special in the fact that we had some people that had a really tough time with that. I bet if we did that drill across fire service, we would be, um, we'd have to have, you know, some of that time looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, are we training appropriately for what the fire ground demands of us as far as our physical fitness goes? And it demands strength, it demands power, it demands speed, and it demands us to be in all of our PPE. So is our, is what we're doing, you know, on a daily basis leading us to be successful when that's the demands of the job. So. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's actually a good thing you mentioned Eric too. We're uh, we've been trying to line up dates. I think, I believe he's going to be episode 42. Oh, great. <laughs> he can, he can expand on that. He's yeah. Very he will have a ton of information for that. So that would be awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, he, there's a lot of good programs in the fire service, but the only person that I trust doing my programming for me to be able to perform on the job is, is Eric. So, um, yeah, he will have a, an incredible amount of good information for everybody. So. Good deal. So looking back, what would you say your proudest teaching moment is so far? Oh, proudest teaching moment. Um, you know, for me, 
I love it every time that, you know, somebody comes back to me and says like, Hey, you know, I, you know, you showed me how to do a baseball bat swing on a door and I used it on a fire the other day or, or somebody used information from the rescue survey to change the search culture in their department. Just anytime that something that I've been able to share with somebody or pass along to somebody um, has changed something they've done in the real world. Um, those, those always make it worth it. You know, those are always the, that's, that's why I'm doing it is just because, you know, I had those moments too. Um, you know, I, Coy Wilson from Stockton taught me the baseball swing like 12 years ago at a fool's class. So, I mean, I just want to pass, pass that on to somebody else because it's made, you know, I've had those same, uh, impactful moments where somebody shared something with me and I actually got to do it and it made a difference. So those are my, those are my proudest teaching moments for sure. How, uh, how cool was it to stand next to a mentor such as uh, Chief Lombardo and, and teach, you know, side by side with him at, you know, firemanship? Yeah, I mean, if, if I had to pick a specific moment, that one's pretty high up there. I, I still can't believe that actually happened, but uh, it's pretty cool just because, one, it shows – um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't need to share the stage or the training ground with anybody, you know, he can, he's got the experience, the time on the job and the knowledge to, you know, he can kind of uh, run that show if he wants and him being willing to uh, kind of split that with me was, uh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Uh, something I'll always remember. So yeah, it was pretty cool for sure. Nice. Um, so let's kind of, let's talk about some, some fire service, uh, you know, training. What, what do you think that we in the fire service are doing right currently? And what do you think, uh, we've, we've kind of missed on and, and need improvement? Yeah. So, uh, I actually got asked this question on a other, a different podcast recently, and I did not have a good answer for what we were doing correctly. I don't even think I had an answer, but um, after some reflection, I think uh, we're doing a really good job of information sharing, um, you know, between the rescue survey, uh, social media, just stuff you can find online, all of that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the poster behind you, Jeff, you know, that we're drowning in information and starving for wisdom. Uh which is a, yeah, an awesome quote, but like we do have an incredible amount of information and for the most part in the fire service, it gets shared very freely. Um, and I think that just, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. Right. So I think that just helps, helps with the entire fire service, uh, being able to have that information right at the ready. Um, and the cool thing, especially about search, because that's like the, you know, what I'm mostly involved in is like, you don't get a lot of egos on the search side of things. And I don't think you do necessarily as much in other places, but definitely with search, it just seems like anybody who's teaching search nationally, like you can, you can call them up and be like, Hey man, can I see your PowerPoint? And they'll just give it to you. You know, it's just like, there's no ego involved. It's all for the cause. Um, and so I think that's pretty amazing. I've always tried to do that as anytime somebody asks me, it's just like, yeah, here's the information, take it, run with it. I, you know, I don't want credit for it. Just 
teach it to somebody else. And so, yeah, I think we're doing that very well in the fire service. And the, I guess the evidence of that is just look at the kind of the change around search that's happened in the last, you know, five, six years and the mentality around it, at least uh, in the places I'm at is uh, been pretty awesome. So I think we're doing that. We're doing a good job of that. We're also doing a good job of uh, preventative stuff. Um, you know, like recognizing the things that are causing cancer and like getting steps put in place to help us out with that. Um, you know, we're doing some good preventative stuff on mental health. Um, all that is, is we're doing a great job with. Um, so yeah, as far as like kind of for lack of a better term, protecting ourselves from some of those things that we know have the potential to happen. We're doing a good job. Uh, what I don't think we're doing a great job with is some of the preparation side of things. So um, the thing I've been working on a lot lately is, again, this is partially from my experience in Georgia, but just how to better um you know, accomplish training that is going to help me actually on the fire ground make decisions. Um, you know, I have this quote that's kind of been stuck in my head and um, the, the guy's name is escaping me now, but he was the mental health coach for the uh, mental performance coach for the Toronto Blue Jays baseball team. And they, they had this quote like in the locker room that said, um, it's not a skill unless you can do it under pressure. And so that I have not been able to uh, get that out of my head since I heard it. And it was partially because it helped explain um, my experience in Georgia and then stuff that's happened on the fire ground is like, um, we, we do a good job of training on the basics. I feel like in a, in a lot of places we get reps, but like, if those, if that training is not leading us to be able to perform it when it actually matters, we're kind of falling short. And I had this kind of light bulb moment for me and Jeff, you'll, uh, and Justin, you'll be able to relate with this too. But like in our brothers in battle irons class, you know, we, we spend eight hours just hammering the basics and you see like people who maybe were like twirling the halligan a little bit when you get there in the morning spend eight hours and they're doing really good. And then like the last thing we would do is we'd be like, all right, everyone's doing pretty good at this now. Now we're just going to time you and we're going to, you know, give a prize to whoever the fastest time is. And what happens like for a lot of people, the wheels just fall off. And so it's like, I can remember it's just like, people are just killing it all day. And then they get to that time segment and we go, okay, we're all we're going to do is put a stopwatch to this. And then they immediately revert back. They're not crossing their tools or, you know, something doesn't go quite right. And they try to donkey kick the door. Like these are all things that I've seen people do, which a half hour before with very little pressure applied, they were doing it perfectly. And so what it made me realize is like for that person, like thinking about that quote, that's kind of the standard we got them to that day. Because when the pressure is on, we go to the actual fire, we are going to revert back to our base level of training. And it takes a tremendous amount of time to fix old habits that we have. And so 
we didn't necessarily get them to like this amazing point because when the pressure, when a very little amount of pressure was applied, they reverted back. Uh, some people don't. Some people get to that point and you put the pressure on and they perform fantastically. So it's kind of different for everybody. But um, what I would like, what I'm hoping happens in the future of the fire service a little bit and what we could do better at is, is recognizing how to structure our training to where we can actually perform the skill under pressure. And a lot of that comes from just slowly, incrementally increasing these pressures as we learn a skill. So like force of entry is an easy example where you learn the basics of the skill, you're able to force the door just fine under normal circumstances. Well, what happens then when we go, okay, now, you know, we're going to time you. Well, we know what happens. Like they got to, they got to regroup and then they got to work on that for a while and they go, okay, we timed you now. Okay. Next time, what we're going to do is not only are we going to time you, but we're going to have you do it on air also, which adds an element. And then the next time, maybe you have them do five burpees before they do it. And then building up to like some of the drills that I've been working on, um, are very intense drills, which I don't want to just like throw out there on the internet. Cause I don't want people just, you know, doing them. Cause I don't want anybody to get hurt, but like building up this skill ladder of being able to perform under pressure. Cause that's what really matters. And I think a lot of times we get a lot of reps in, but what are those reps like, you know, is it when we are a little bit fatigued? Is it when we have a little bit of an elevated heart rate or we have the, a little bit of pressure added from a timed element. And so, I think something we can get better at is just uh, taking a really hard look at the basics we're training on, which we're doing pretty good, and then taking those to the next level of performing under pressure. Because when you look at like the most elite teams in the world, and firefighters love to look at stuff that like Navy SEALs and everything are doing, but like the people I've listened to that come from that background, they didn't do any training where there wasn't some type of external pressure applied to what they were working on um, because the reality is the environment we work in is a pressure-filled environment so if our training isn't mimicking that uh, I know I've found myself falling you know falling short on the fire ground because of it because I wasn't prepared for it like I thought I was yeah and that that pressure doesn't have to be anything uh, that that's, you know, absolutely insane. Like I remember I was with Justin in Seattle helping out with a, a, a search class and, you know, we had already went through the drags and everything. And all, all he said was, Hey, Jeff, go in there and lay down. And, you know, we taught them three different ways to drag somebody. I think they ripped off both my shirts I were wearing. I was wearing, <laughs> it, it was literally because they weren't expecting, they literally told me when they came yeah. out, they're like, I was not expecting a real person to be in there. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, the, the VES beyond the door class has, is full of examples too, of like what happens when somebody comes around the corner of a building and someone's yelling and a, and a dummy is falling through the air, you know, just all these little things and, and people freeze. And then we expect that we're not going to do that on the fire ground when it actually happens. And yeah. A, a lot of this for me was just there were things that would happen to me on the fire ground mistakes that I would make that I would never make under normal training conditions. Like I, I, I work on some of these skills a lot just ad nauseum 
And then I would go and do that on the fire ground. And then I would make a mistake that I'm like, I would never make that mistake in training, but I'm making it on the fire ground. Why is that happening? Again, that pesky question of why, you know, like, why is that happening to me? Why am I making this mistake when it counts the most? And part of that is, is just my disconnect between what is happening to me, you know, physiologically on the fire ground and how am I not preparing myself for that during my training, trying to fix that problem. So. No, I agree. Absolutely too, Brian. And that's, you know, you bring up a good point because, you know, as far as like the search aspect of it, the few academies that I taught when I was down at our training division, you know, we, we go through the motions of the tripod position and the victim drags and several weeks of doing this over and over and over and getting the reps in. And then, the instant that you put them in a structure with low to zero viz. And like you said, the wheels fall off. Like it's just because it's yeah. that added stressor of not having that vision. So, yeah, I think that's a great point and definitely something to be added to um, our training if we're not doing it already. So, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th I think some of it too is just like, you know, quality over quantity at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Like you want the quantity of those reps when you're learning that skill, but then – at some point you, you want to switch gears a little bit and you're going to, you are shooting for the quality of it, you know, um, because we do build these training scars in and that's part of it also. Like, even if it's a good thing, like I'll give another example real quick. Uh, I, I just taught a, a tactics on tap thing down in Reno, Nevada, uh, last month. Um, and, I was talking about training scars and, you know, like a month beforehand, I knew I was going to do this and I knew it would work and it, it, it totally did. I, I asked the people in the uh, audience, I was like, all right, who knows how to do a live fire layout? And some hands went up and I go, all right, who has less than two years on the job? And, you know, a guy had his hand up and I go, all right, I want you to come over to this door and I want you to do a live fire layout. And I, you know, and I go, you're not afraid to get your clothes dirty. And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay, like our reputation is counting on you doing this right. And I knew what would happen. I knew that he would do the slide fire layout and he would get on his belly and he would sweep and he would do what is considered a good live fire layout. Right. So he went out, he went to the door, he did it. And then I asked him, I go, why did you get on the ground? I go, there's no smoke in here. There's no fire in here. There's nothing that made you get on the ground. But I knew he had been practicing that live fire layout over and over and over again. And every time he didn't get on the ground, he probably got yelled at. Say, get on the ground, even though the conditions didn't necessarily warrant it. And that was just a quick way to, for me to show, like, even though that's not a terrible training scar, I don't think. Like, I've seen people get on their belly you know, when you go through the front door and it's an attic fire and there's no smoke in the house, like it really doesn't cost you a whole lot, but like we have these training scars built in and we want to be sure that we're not just doing so many reps on a certain thing that it's something that can be detrimental. Cause I have my own, uh, reminder every day when I, or every time I go to work, you got to walk through the training room to get to the weight room. And there's a big blown up picture of a, a ridge line of a roof with like 14 holes cut in it from a fire that we had. And it's a constant reminder because I, I look at that picture and one truck company was from a neighboring city and I was on the other truck company. We went up and cut a bunch of holes. And I always ask people, I go, look at that picture and tell me what's wrong with it. 
And what's wrong with it is every single one of those holes that are on this roof on an actual fire are four by two vent holes. And I go, why are they four by two vent holes? It's because when we train, a lot of times we're trying to conserve OSB and we cut four by two holes because we can cut more holes on one sheet of four by eight OSB than we can cut if we cut actual four by fours. And so it's just this thing of like quality over quantity. Like, yeah, we cut more holes, but we, and we even always talk about it as a truck company, like we're, we're yeah, we're cutting four by twos today, but we're going to cut a four by four on a real roof. Well, the proof is in this picture that I see all the time. And like, that is not what we did. Every single, and the other truck company was from a different city and they train a ton too. So it's funny because a lot of times these little things that can, you know, kind of bite us on the fire ground, they happen to the people who are training the most because we're putting in all of these reps, but we're not always paying very close attention to what are we actually teaching ourselves when we're just out there getting reps. And that's part of the thing is like, yeah, we taught ourselves to cut four by twos. And even though we said we wouldn't, we went on the roof and that's exactly what we did. So. Yeah. And if I remember right, that last podcast you're on, they talked about too, what a kind of a training scar or training, whatever you want to call it is as far as the live fire layout. Um, what do you see? You know, how many yeah. times do we have to do the live fire layout and then they don't have a victim bolt you have one or not and then kind of announcing that so i i kind of took that away from that. i was like oh, that's actually a good point because if we have them doing that every time and then you lay a victim out there are they going to actually announce that they have a victim or not so yeah, yeah good point yeah. so kind of moving on um so if you were to look in the future as far as like fire service training and learning and so on in the next 10 to 20 years where do you see us or what what do you see could be changed or like what yeah i mean what I what I hope happens is that uh, we we realize that we we just we have to do more live fire training. And I know other people have said that, but, um, you know, just like as an example, I have I have people on my job right now that have been, you know, they have like a year and a half in and they haven't been to a real structure fire yet. And so it's like they're a year and a half in, they haven't been to their first structure fire. If we're not supplementing some live fire training for those people, like we, you just have to do it, you know? And I know there are all, all kinds of challenges with doing that, but uh, I hope we realize that uh, if we're not um, supplementing that live fire training, especially for those departments that aren't running a lot of fires, we're really putting ourselves in, in a bad spot when it comes to performing on the fire ground. Uh, I know we're going to be doing a lot more virtual reality stuff. That's just the way the entire world is going. Um, and so that we, it would be kind of silly for us to think that's not going to um, be a part of our fire service. Again, I hope we just use it as a supplement to uh, help with actually getting, you know, hands-on training and things like that. So I think that uh, some of the virtual reality stuff can be very beneficial, but uh, we can't we can't let that be this type of scenario where it takes over all the training that we do because then we're just going to add in all kinds of other training scars and bad decision-making skills, you know. So um, the thing I also hope for is, uh, you know, I hope we really – latch on to this idea of how do we how do we better perform under pressure um the fire service always seems to be 
you know, just a little bit behind the military as far as like technology and training and things like that. Um, you know, I think if we're wanting to be, you know, quote unquote, like elite level, small units in the fire service and be really good crews, we have to look at what those teams in other areas uh, of life, whether that's military or, or other, other professional areas, like what are they doing for training and are we doing the same types of things in the fire service? And so I think the more we learn about uh, just human biology and and what is happening to us, you know, when we're on the fire ground between our body and our mind. And um, I think we're, we're going to get a lot better at that because we're going to realize like we can, we can force the door prop all day long and practice these skills. But if we don't understand what's actually going to happen to us and affect our decision-making and our performance on the fire ground, we're going to, we're going to be falling short. So I think we'll catch up in that area and that's kind of where my, my passion is at at the moment. So. Excellent. And, you know, we've, uh, we've brought up that you're on a, a recent podcast and do you want to give them a shout out, uh, undisclosed agents. I was trying to make sure that we didn't hit the same exact things. Uh, there are a few things that are in our normal questions that we obviously overlapped, but those yeah. guys, did, those guys did an excellent job too. <laughs> and then, uh, if you want to hit up one of the OG original Brian Olsons, you can go to uh, Refined by Fire, you know, uh, Steven Tyler, bring it back. Uh, but, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I think if you want to bring it back, you might just have to take the name from him, Jeff. <laughs> uh, you know, I, when I had him on here, I thought I was like seconds away from him doing it. And then like, yeah, yeah ended and he's like, ah, well, fuck that idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you never know. You never know. It, it, it's not dead, I'm sure. So, um, yeah, those guys are great. Um, Hortons and Hunt, their training group and their podcast. Uh, I haven't I haven't listened to the podcast episode, but uh, yeah, I've gotten some good feedback. So, yeah, those guys are awesome. That's a that's a good podcast to listen to, especially because they interview a lot of people that uh, you might not otherwise hear from, which is really cool you know so a lot of people from their area so oh yeah um and then lastly uh we just got four quick ones and then we can open it up to you for anything else you want to add what is the best conference that you've attended either instructing or as a student uh i mean it's the firemanship conference you know uh no conference i've ever been to is matched just kind of the energy of the firemanship conference. Um, the people that go to that conference, I just, I've been to quite a few of them and yeah, the firemanship conference in Portland and I'm hoping, uh, it's going to be that same way in Illinois. I'm sure it will be and probably even better. Um, but yeah, the, if there was one conference, the only one I could go to forever, it'd be that one for sure. Nice. Let's, uh, what about the best class? Uh, best class is definitely the Georgia smoke diver program. Um, you know, it's certainly more than, more than a class to a lot of people, but when it comes right down to it is, yeah, it's a week long training program and yeah, nothing, nothing I've been to has, you know, affected me personally and how I prepare for the job more than that program. So, um, I always tell people, cause I, I do get people asking me about it fairly often is, like if you're thinking about doing it just do it 
Um, there's obviously a reason, something inside you that makes you want to do it. So go for it because yeah, there's a chance you could go and not make it. But even that for a lot of people um, has been, you know, a very, uh, a very beneficial time in their career because they either go back and, and do it again and make it happen or they learn, you know, you're always going to learn something about yourself, whether you make it or not. So uh, I, I always tell people if they're thinking about doing it, just just go do it. Um, that's the only way to truly know what it's like. Um, and then there's another class. I just want to, this is kind of an interesting story. There's another class that I went to uh, Seattle uh, back in like, it, it must have been 2012 or 2011, maybe. Uh, ben Moores and I drove all night long to Seattle from Boise, slept in his car in front of the training center, like on the side of the road and took this forcible entry class from the Puget Sound Fools. And the uh, kind of amazing thing about that class is that that was the first class that Cody Trestrail and Jesse Avery had taught together. Um, there were a lot of other guys there, Josh Matiri, uh, um, Coy Wilson, who I already mentioned from Stockton, uh, Tommy Hoffland, another guy from Seattle. And then like pretty much a lot of the guys that ended up being brothers in battle cadre uh, were at that class. Chris Fukai, Rob Fisher, um, Ryan Mills, like all these guys were just happened to be at the same class that um, Ben and I drove to just because we wanted to take a forcible entry class. And at that point, we had never forced a door prop before. We went to this class and saw all these door props and took this 10 hour class. And then we immediately got in the car and drove all the way home. Cause I had to work a shift the next day. And, uh, that's what started refined by fire for me is I, I went home and was like, I have to build a door prop and I had scrap iron and a welder and I built the world's worst door prop ever. And so, um, and then that just started it all from there. And then now um, with American West Fabrication and my buddy Zach Wagner is an Eagle Fireman, we, we build door props and sell them. So uh, that class also had a huge impact and it was just a, you know, a one day fool's class where a bunch of uh, firefighters got together and shared the job. So that one also had a pretty big impact on my career. So. What about, uh, what about a book? Um, yeah, not to copy Steven Tyler's answer, but I mean, the gospels are the best book I've ever read for sure. Uh, if I change the question a little bit to like, um, the two books that I give out the most to people, um, are Gates of Fire by Steven Pressfield. Um, if you're a firefighter, I think you should read that book. Um, it's based on, if people don't know that book, it's based on the uh, Battle of Thermopylae with the Spartans. If you've seen the movie 300, like that's kind of what this book is about. But, you know, there are so much leadership stuff in that book. It's crazy. Um, it is just, uh, yeah, I give it to firefighters all the time. Uh, it's an amazing book. I'm surprised there's not like fireship firefighter leadership classes just based on that book um i think it's that influential so gates of fire by stephen pressfield and then also the road by cormac mccarthy um two fiction books oddly enough uh but uh 
the road I give out all the time. If you are a father or mother um, with sons, um, especially fathers and sons, because that's what the book is, is based on. Um, that book uh, is, is pretty incredible book. Um, it really uh, challenges this idea of like protection over preparation, you know, as uh, parents, you know, we want to protect our kids, of course, but we have to have equal or more parts of preparing them for the world ahead than just trying to always protect them. Um, and so that could also be transitioned to the fire service pretty easily. But uh, those two books, Gates to Fire by Stephen Pressfield and The Road by Cormac McCarthy are the ones that if I'm in a bookstore and I see a copy of those, I buy it because I know I'm going to give it to somebody. So. Excellent. I got, I got those written down. Did you, Sweet. did you finish the, uh, mastering the craft yet? Yeah. Yeah. It's an excellent, excellent book. Yeah. Excellent book. Um, yeah, that's, I've been reading a lot. I mean, I was, I've always been quite, I read quite a bit, but like now that I don't have social media, yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> reading a bunch, but, uh, yeah, uh, Jeff Rothmeyer is, obviously a very influential firefighter in the fire service and yeah he wrote a great book if you haven't read it mastering the craft um it definitely has like kind of a military bent to it as far as the way jeff speaks about the fire service so if like you're very into that style of uh thinking and that style of structure like i think you would really really appreciate that book um, i did i thought it was great so Awesome. Jeff helps us host the podcast every once in a while. So shameless oh, cool. for him. So yeah, the the first class search class Justin and I ever taught together, Jeff was at that class um in St. Paul. And so was Nick Ledeen. So the small world of the fire service, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I got in trouble because I gave that book for a Christmas gift and Jeff Jeff put my name in the in the uh like the the intro or whatever. And my boy's oh, yeah. like, oh, you gave me a fucking book with your name in it. <laughs> yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, uh, what podcasts, you can give us a, a couple, do you think that, that we should be listening to? Um, I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm not going to have too many different answers. Grabs is my favorite fire service one. You know, I think everybody sees the value in that podcast. Um. Of course, I've listened to all the Fire Nuggets podcasts. Uh, Undisclosed Agents uh, is a great one that I've been listening to a bunch. Um, I also enjoy Leadership Under Fire and uh, MCTI, Mission Critical Teams Institute, are ones. Um, Non-firefighting stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I listen to the Meat Eater podcast. That's probably the podcast I've listened to the most, um, if you guys are familiar with that one. Um, if you're, anybody's a hunter, they would, they would certainly know that. And then I listen to a lot of the, you know, like human performance type stuff with the Huberman lab and the drive with Peter Atia and, and just stuff to try and, you know, challenge myself to make myself better. So, um, yeah, those are, those are the ones I'm listening to. Um, I listen to a lot of books as well. So I try to temper the podcast a little bit cause I don't want to get too, too siloed in the fire service stuff so i really uh try to branch out with a lot of that stuff and keep the creativity flowing in my brain awesome well that that is it for questions and you know we really appreciate you coming on if there's anything uh that you'd like to say before we we close it up uh go ahead uh 
Well, one, just, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's pretty cool. Like I said, I've listened to all the episodes, so it's always good to get on here and uh, talk about some fire stuff. And then the other thing is too, like, um, I don't want to leave out the, the one part that wasn't in my bio is that I'm the chaplain for Eagle Fire as well. And so I'm a firefighter. I'm also the chaplain. And, and one of the most rewarding things I think I've done in the fire service is give invocations like at the firemanship conference or, um, you know, I'm doing one at March Mayhem. I'm potentially doing one at uh, the High Plains Fire Conference coming up in May. Um, just talked to uh, Adam Mayers about that the other day. So I might be there too. And then, um, yeah. So any chance I get to do those, I, I really appreciate that because like I said, I would not be a firefighter if it wasn't for uh, me listening to God when he told me that's what I was going to do. Cause I'd, I was 25 years old and hadn't spent one minute of my life thinking about being a firefighter. So when I get to uh, do those invocations and kind of, uh, and preach to the you know to the fire service a little bit uh it's very rewarding for me and very challenging for me so um yeah i appreciate those times as well so if you know i'm not going to say that i'll say yes to every single person who might ask me to do that but uh, yeah if you have something um yeah put myself out there a little bit and say uh i'm willing to do those when when it works out so Awesome. Well, in about six months, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll, we'll hear you in, uh, in the Midwest. I hope, I mean, yeah, that's the first I've been asked. So if you're asking me, I'll be there. So well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping so, but I didn't want to assume anything. So, um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, cool. Yes. <laughs> yeah man i mean I'm, I'm sure cody was gonna ask anyway so i'm i'm sure i'm sure it's a done deal but um j-lo do you got anything to add at the end no i don't man awesome awesome episode and, and i appreciate your time coming on and, and sharing with us well, thanks justin appreciate it all right and then that concludes the episode uh thank you very much and uh sit tight until till the next episode thank you